Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Shelly Oria. Shelly is the author of New York One, Tel Aviv Zero, and the editor of Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement. The new collection that she has edited is titled, I Know What's Best for You, Stories on Reproductive Freedom, which is published by our friends at McSweeney's. Shelly, welcome to the program. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And Shelly, first, can you please tell us how Ruth Bader Ginsburg inspired you during the creation of this collection? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I don't know that I would say exactly that she inspired me so much as when I started um, working on this book and became kind of more and more aware of just how dire our reproductive um, freedom crisis is, which I think is something that a lot of people right now are like, yes, of course. Back in, 19, in 2019, when I started working on this book, the situation was already pretty dire and it was no secret to anyone sort of involved in that field. But a lot of people, a lot of writers I, I was talking to weren't necessarily as versed in it. And I hadn't been until I was asked to take on this project and started looking into it more and reading more and educating myself more or as much as I could. Um, and in that process, I became aware of essentially what we're now living through in 2022, right? Like that scenario um, which isn't to say, you know, I think people did know, we've, we've all known, we were, we're all concerned with her health because we did know about this scenario and other scenarios um, of what it would mean like, to what it would mean and what it would look like to have the court, the Supreme Court that we have now. Um, and at the same time, I think there's, there's awareness and then there's awareness, right? There's like knowing and then there's like when you start really thinking about some, something a lot. And so I just became for a while very anxious about it. And I would, um, you know, if, if you, maybe you know, maybe you remember at that time, there was a lot of talk about, yes, she's old. Yes, she's gone through a lot of health challenges, but she's super strong and she works out a lot. And so there was these videos of her doing like TRX push-ups, and I forced stretch became a little bit addicted um, to watching them because they calmed me down. It just made me feel like, okay she's look at her go. I don't know that I could do that. Like she's fine. Um, so yeah, that was, that's something that I referenced in the forward to the book. For sure. And can you tell us about how your previous collection, Indelible in the Hippocampus, um, can you tell us about that collection and how editing that project led you to this one? Yeah. Um, so I guess the most kind of practical answer is that that book too was done with McSweeney's. And so I was already in a, in a collaborative process and project with them and Amanda Yuli, McSweeney's publisher. Um, I think right around the time that I was about to go on tour with Indelible um, told me that there was this new idea that she was in conversations with um, Carol Davis, who uh, is a board member of McSweeney's and who's uh, one of the women who co-founded co the Bridget Alliance, which is a nonprofit that uh, arranges and funds the way for uh, individuals across the country who need to travel for abortion care. So they had been talking for a little while about this idea 
about a collaboration between the Bridge Alliance and McSweeney's to create a book that would respond to our crisis. And so uh, Amanda asked me if I would take that on. And I think right before I went on tour, I met with Carol and started sort of the process that I alluded to earlier in which I understood how little I actually knew. Um, and then when sort of when I came back from tour and things started to calm down a little bit around Indelible, I started working on this book by which I mean, um, reaching out to a ton of writers, starting to put together the collection. Great, thank you so much. Um, these next two questions are related, Shelley. My next question is, uh, what kind of shit show are we in for here in the United <laughs> States of America if Roe versus Wade is overturned by the Supreme Court? Uh-huh. Um, yeah, well, I get asked a version of this question a lot these days, understandably so and rightfully so. And so I always kind of start with just the disclaimer of like, I'm no legal ex expert. I'm no reproductive freedom expert. I'm just a writer. Um, and even whenever, you know, whenever I quote like scary numbers, I'm like, I've done a couple of these with um, Udil Shalit, who's the executive director of the Bridge Lines. And it's just so nice to have her there because then I can feel, I feel like I have like my proofreader <laughs> right next to me. And if I mess up any numbers, like someone's got it. When I'm, and most of the time I'm doing interviews, uh, not with her. And then I have to do what I'm doing now, which is explain um, that please research your own numbers. And, and also I don't know what the shit show is going to look like exactly, but I do imagine that's part of why I'm so happy to be in this collaboration with specifically with the Bridget Alliance, because I think that organizations like them to me are the future of this fight or, or a big portion of it because so much of it, that just seems intuitive and logical, right? That so much of it is going to come down to travel because if we have like more and more states and to anyone who doesn't know, like there's 13 states, again, with the numbers, et cetera, but 13 states that have trigger laws, which means that right when Roe gets overturned, um, assuming that it does immediately, uh, abortion becomes illegal in that state. And I think it's something like 26 states um, total that uh, that are very likely to be extremely restrictive of abortion once Roe falls, um, if not entirely so. And so if you think about the map of the country with that in mind, it seems pretty clear that so much of it is going to come down to travel for at least uh, a good stretch of time and organizations working to facilitate that for pregnant people everywhere in this country are just essential and crucial. And so I hope people sort of keep that in mind. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, and one version of what this uh, future looks like, Shelley, um, involves Margaret Atwood. And my question for you is, are we living in The Handmaid's Tale? <laughs> um, it does feel that way sometimes, doesn't it? Yeah, there's been there's been a lot of um, moments for me in this process of like sheer fear right like you get you have different feelings sometimes it it's outrage I mean I do think a lot of it is anger for a lot of um of women and and, and of people in general in this country around this so there's different feelings but but certainly fear and that's where the that would vision comes in uh fear has been um dominant for me in in certain moments and I think you know specifically one aspect that I've um that I've been thinking about a lot and, and that I wrote about, I, I reference it in the forward. And then I also focused one of the points of view and my own story in the book on that um, are fake clinics or as they're officially called the CPCs, crisis pregnancy centers. So I think that's a super like handmaid's tale 
um, aspect of things. And to people who don't know, I mean, I think when I say fake clinics, even people who haven't heard of them can sort of intuitively understand what they are. But basically, they are places that pretend to be and, and often look like and often are placed right across from actual abortion clinics. But what they do, in fact, is intimidate women in all kinds of way, ways, um, show them horrible films, um, talk to them about the Bible and, and give a lot of misinformation. I mean, I don't think they do all of those things all of the time. I think they choose to, different ones, have different tactics, et cetera. But really things that to me are, are just um, plain evil, like telling a woman, you know, what's the harm in taking your time? Just take your time. Here's your date for your new appointment. Think it through. And that date happens to be, you know, a day or two after abortion is no longer legal for that woman in that state. Um, so things like that, that are really horrific um, are very Handmaid's Tale-esque. Yeah. And I have been um, enjoying these videos that have surfaced over the last day or so. Margaret Atwood with a flamethrower. Um, she's produced a flame proof uh, version of the Handmaid's Tale that she's selling. Um, well, um, I want to follow up with that. This is uh, the, you know, the fact that I am a male shining through here, Shelley, but I had no idea that these anti-abortion abortion clinics uh, did exist or the, the clinics in disguise. Um, what would happen in one of these if um, a woman walked in and was like, thank you for the information, but actually I think I do want to uh, go through with the procedure today. What would one of these fake clinics do then? Oh, I have no idea. That's exactly what I mean by like, I don't, you know, I'm not, um, I'm no expert on this topic. I don't, I don't think also that there is one clear answer. I think, you know, there's, there's people working there um, and people are different. So it depends on who the person is responding and what state we're in and what the culture, the specific culture to the area and the state are, et cetera. So I don't know that there is one answer to that. Um, I certainly don't mean to suggest, at least to the best of my knowledge, that they like take women hostage and keep them there and force them to stay pregnant. Um, but I do know that um, they target often women without means and, and women who aren't as educated and um, and not that I think they only target these women, but but I do think that there are certain women who are just more susceptible to being guilted in certain way or to being um, um, misinformed. And, and certainly a lot of these clinics are aware of that. And there are about 2,700 of them in this country. Again, this is true for the time that I research, did my research for the forward. So it's this information is about a year to a year and a half old. And as we know, things have only gotten worse. So there's probably more of them. And that number means between three to four fake clinics to every one remaining abortion clinic in this country. So, you know, I think that even if they, if, you know, even to your question, like even if that happens a lot, and even if it's, oh, if a woman is able to just figure out where she, where she is, which the women in my story do and just leave, um, you know, even if they, they lose a lot of, quote unquote, a lot, a lot of women that way, the harm that they do is still so significant and prevailing. Absolutely. Listeners, be careful out there. Do your research when you're uh, choosing where you need to visit. Well, listeners, we are going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Shelly Oria. Book and Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM allows you to buy audiobooks directly through your favorite local independent bookstore like Explore Booksellers. You continue to put money back into your local economy and help local bookstores thrive. 
please navigate to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your local independent bookstores in the process. I'm back with Shelley Oria, author of I Know What's Best for You, Stories on Reproductive Freedom, which is published by our friends at McSweeney's. Shelly, before the break, I asked you about Roe versus Wade. Uh, Can you tell us how the Republican approach to overturn a woman's right to reproductive freedom aligns uh, with that party's voting against emergency funding for the production of baby formula? (laughs) Um, Well, it seems like you should tell us about that, Jason. (laughs) But I do, I think that what you're alluding to is such an important point because um, because it does not align, right? Because we've seen in Republican agenda for so long now, this inexplicable care for what they deem human life um, when it is not yet viable versus the neglect to that same life when it is in fact viable and alive and sometimes um, much older and sometimes incarcerated and sometimes um, needing supports on the family um, as, as a family structure, you know, um, and sometimes needing support to combat police violence that a particular individuals, individual is more susceptible to than others and on and on and on, like all of these issues that are actual care and respect and dignity for life or of life are not on their agenda. In fact, their agenda is fighting these things. And yet, I, you know, it's hard to even understand. This is where they choose to care uh, about what they deem life. It is really, I have to often really stretch my brain to even try to understand. And I do, for the record, do that. I think that's important to do, to try to understand where people are coming from. And, you know, and certainly when you do imagine a consciousness that believes, very different from my own beliefs, but that believes that babies are being murdered, that's awful. Like I would be out in the street trying to prevent that. Um, so I do try to stretch my brain in those directions. I think, um, I think that's an important thing to do. And yet I can't say it's an easy thing for me to do in this, in this current time, in part because of exactly what you allude to. Those discrepancies just are hard to, um, to comprehend or to make sense of. Yeah, and I, I too agree that it's important to try to stretch your brain. And I also agree uh, or think that it's equally important to realize uh, when there's no way to stretch your brain around. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, put, well put, yes. Yeah. Um, do you think the desire to curb a woman's right to uh, abortion is just about producing more taxpayers? Hmm. I, I sadly don't think that it's about any one thing. Um, and in a way, that's an important um, point that I'm trying to make in the way, both in the forward a little bit and in the way that I curated the book. I don't think it is about one thing, but if it is about one thing, it is about controlling women um, and, and pregnant people and, and their bodies. And I think that um, one thing that was very important to me in putting this book together and, and that is in part, that did come in part from sort of what I learned and observed in, in making and entering with the other book, the previous anthology and Delbo on the Hippocampus, um, is that I think, you know, aggressions toward women live in a silo context. And I think it is just so important for us as a society 
to keep that in mind, to not sort of um, pretend that, for instance, you know, society in which sexual assault is so rampant and the one now trying to police uh, women and pregnant people into staying pregnant when they don't wish to, but that's not like some weird coincidence that that happens to be the same society. Like how weird, you know, Um, when in fact those aggressions are connected. And I think the better we get at seeing that at how um, women and non-binary people, and specifically, of course, when I say women, you know, it's just, um, there's a way that we can talk about how that's harder for women of color and harder for women with disabilities and harder for queer women. Um, so really I sort of use that as, as shorthand, but, but just the ways in which um, women are subjugated in that way. And that there's so much of what is happening is really a way to kind of maintain social structures and make sure that that, um, that, that remains. And I don't mean by that, that there's like, and necessarily conscious attempt to do that, or that there was like this evil committee sitting somewhere being, um, saying, let's make sure that women stay in their place. Let's make sure that domestic violence, it doesn't improve. Let's make sure that pay discrepancies or disparities aren't addressed. Um, I don't think it's quite as simple as that in a way when things are simple and blatant as that. And we've seen that in different ways in in our culture in the last few years, when things do become that blatant in a way they become easier to tackle. And I think there's the problem of feminism is how subtle, how ingrained um, all of those things are in in our thinking and in our patterns and in how we approach problems. Absolutely. Thank you, Shelley. Um, In this collection, I was surprised to see the multitude of genres uh, that it contained. Uh, Can you tell our listeners what they can expect to find when they pick this collection? I know what's best for you up. Yeah, um, that's an aspect of the book that's super important to me. So the, you know, the previous book was also multi-genre. It was fiction, nonfiction, poetry. And in interviews, I got asked a lot about that. I talked about how important it is to me. And as we alluded to, talked about a little bit earlier, I, I sort of started working on this project right on the heels of the other. So one of my first thoughts was like, well, if I'm talking so much about multi-genre, let's really make it mean something. Like, let's make this new book book even more multi-genre. So this book has the same variety of um, essays, stories, and poems. But in addition to that, we also feature three plays and a comic and photography by the incredible Rachel Isaac Griffith. Um, So a big, big array. And we can talk maybe a little bit later about the international supplement to this book. And one of the things that was very important to me with the supplement, which they keep saying, like, I know no one cares about that particular thing except me, but it was really important to me that that the supplement mirror the same variety of uh, multi-genre to the T. So, you know, the, so in the supplement too, we have a comic, we have photography, like I worked very hard on, on, on that. Um, and I think it's, I mean, we could talk a lot about, like, I, th- I have many thoughts um, about why that matters to me, but in a way, I think that... Um, And so I feel like I have answered the question of why that mattered to me like seven different ways. And they're all honest, they're all important. I think maybe the most um, honest one is that it's just so true to my core, both as a queer person, I do, I see my queerness kind of uh, very attached to to that way of 
looking at things and to wanting to make a, a inclusive space and of that sort and a multi-genre diverse um, space. And and as someone, so I I was born in uh, in Los Angeles, but I grew up in Israel, and and English is my second language, and I only moved to New York in my twenties. So also being binational and writing in my second language are big parts of my identity. And so all of that, I think, really is my most honest answer is just that I gravitate toward multi-genre, not only as writer and reader, but um, but sort of to my core in the way that I approach a project. But I mentioned inclusivity, and that's a big part of it to me as well. I think. You know, in general, when you curate a book, of course, you end up kind of excluding, and, and that's not to say I'm not critical of that choice, it's just a reality of it that you end up excluding a lot of writers when, if you do, uh, if you curate it in a way that's only open to one particular genre. With these topics, it was very important to me not to exclude in that way. And I think that especially with when by with these topics, I'm, I'm alluding just to the previous book as well. So both with topics like Me Too and now Reproductive Freedom, I think for even a lot of essayists, that would be nonfiction writers, creative nonfiction writers, that is hard to tackle. And so even, and, and I saw that here, that a lot of contributors actually ended up um, making work in not their strongest or most common um, genre, which is super interesting to me. Um, and so just giving people that choice to participate and to contribute and to be part of this project and however way felt comfortable to them um, felt super important to me and made and made the project feel just a lot more inclusive to me. Yeah, thank you. And Shelly, can you tell us a little bit more about this um, international supplement to your collection, uh, where it lives, where people can find it, and um, how long it will continue to be supplemented? <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you for that question. So the book is I Know It's Best For You, the supplement is I Know It's Best For You all over the world. Um, and really it started because it seemed, you know, stuff we talked about earlier in our conversation, Jason, and like how, you know, with this project, I was really thinking of it and the Sweeney's were thinking of it as a response to our reproductive freedom crisis. And that meant a lot to me in terms of how I curate it. Like it needed to be a response to the American crisis. And at the same time, as I was going about curating this American book, things were happening with reproductive freedom all over the world. And I just mentioned sort of my own history as a binational person or not history, identity as, as a binational person. And, and so that's something that I'm hyper aware of. And it felt really, I just felt torn for a while. Like it seemed essential to curate this book in this way as response to our crisis and equally essential, essential um, to spotlight what's happening around the world. So eventually I, I talked to Amanda Yuli, McSweeney's publisher, and kind of communicated that, that thought and that conundrum um, and asked if we could do a supplement and because she's truly as supportive and incredible um, a collaborator and, and partner um, as can be, she, she said, okay, let's do it. Yes, absolutely. And then, um, so that ended up being quite, quite a long sort of uh, process and project in its own right. And that supplement features writers and artists from 16 countries including China and Saudi Arabia and Afghanistan and India and um, Sweden and Greece and you know Poland, um, Argentina, I'm gonna stop now. So, um, and then what we ended up doing, which is all to McSweeney's credit, which I think is such a wonderful idea. So the original idea was this would just live on the McSweeney's web website. Um, and that is happening. It is in the process of happening. Uh, by design, we're sort of making it kind of gradual. So the project has its own page on the website. And if you go to McSweeney's and just uh, put in the, 
in the search line, in the search bar um, all over the world, or I know it's best for you all over the world, or just Google, I know it's best for you all over the world, McSweeney's, you will get there very easily. And every week new pieces drop onto that project page. Um, so that's, that was the original intention and that's happening and that's wonderful. But then um, McSweeney's had this other idea of also creating, making that supplement into an ebook that book buyers can get for free. So whenever you buy the book, you get the kind of code um, with which you can download the supplement as an ebook in full ebook ebook ebook. That is hard for my ESL self to say ebook form um, to any of you know to any of your devices. Absolutely, thank you, Shelley. Um, finally, you you write that reading and collecting these stories made you against all odds optimistic. And I have to tell you, reading them made me feel that way too. I found this book, um, which may sound strange to our listeners who don't have it yet um, because of the content, but I found it to be a pleasurable, enjoyable reading experience. And partially because I find it to be pleasurable and enjoyable to, to be enlightened uh, by people's words and the different experiences they are having. But how did the stories in this collection, Shelley, lead to optimism for you? Well, first of all, I'm so happy to hear you say that. That means a lot to me. Um, so thank you for that perspective and for sharing that. Um, it's a really good question. There's a sarcastic Israeli part of me that wants to say, well, I wrote that before recent events. It is harder to be optimistic um, right in this moment. Um, and yet I do still believe that the book offers that. And it's a really interesting question. That I haven't yet been asked to kind of unpack that, right? Like, but how, but what about it? Um, I think one thing I can point to is humor. There's just a lot of humor in this book and there's something about humor, especially in the context of community. Um, and I do think of the book as both a, set, a community and a community, uh, hopefully creating the experience of community and the feeling of community and readers. And humor in community is, is empowering and, and gives us a, a form of release and relief that we so desperately need and that when we experience it, our physical uh, selves, our physical systems can relax a little bit and can, and I think into that relaxation, we can breathe some optimism. Like once we're not so gripped by anxiety, by pure anxiety and rage and fear, then suddenly if we laugh and we feel that sense of community, suddenly something else becomes possible, like having some kind of hope that one way or another, um, we're going to continue to fight and that things will get better because we'll make them get better. Um, so I do hope that the book offers that, that perspective. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Shelley. And thank you so much for editing this very important collection. Listeners, I have been speaking with Shelley Oria, editor of I Know What's Best for You, Stories on Reproductive Freedom, which is published by our friends at McSweeney's. Shelley, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Jason. This was so lovely. Once again, I would like to thank Shelly Oria for joining me. Copies of I Know It's Best for You, Stories on Reproductive Freedom can be ordered from www.explorebooksellers.com. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local 
independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.